Hello and welcome to this episode of Sounds and Sweet Airs, the podcast for the Shakespearean Music Study Group. I'm delighted to host today's guest, the British-Ukrainian mezzo-soprano Rosanna Madilus. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Rosanna has been described by the Daily Telegraph as having an engaging stage presence and praised by Opera magazine for her compelling performances offering fluid line and gripping conviction. She has appeared on international stages, including Garsington Opera, Birmingham Opera Company, Wexford Festival Opera, Waterbury Opera Festival, and Festival d'Aix-en-Provence. As an active recitalist, she has performed at Wolfson Hall, the Hollywell Music Room, King's Place, the Prokofiev Hall in the Marinsky Theatre, and the St. Petersburg Philharmonic. She graduated from the Royal Academy of Music uh, Opera course and was Young Artist of the Berlin Opera Academy, York Scholte Academia, and Oxford Lydia Festival. A current City Music Foundation artist, Rosanna's recording of John Kaskin's Kokoschka's Doll with Sir John Tomlinson and Counterpoise Ensemble is now available on Champs Hill Records. Her future engagements include Forrester's wife, Indiana Chicks, The Cunning Little Vixen for Longborough Festival Opera and Cordelia and the Fool in the world premiere of John Caskin's music drama based on Shakespeare's King Lear, The Shackled King, featuring also Sir John Tomlinson and as a part of International Boxing Festival. Very impressive stuff. Thank you for that introduction. Would you like a job as my PR management? <laughs> I would be delighted. And I'd be delighted. <laughs> <laughs> but let's first of all just talk a little bit about you and your background and then we come to the Shakespeare and everything that goes from there. So um, you studied at uh, Royal Academy of Music Opera course? I, I How- did, yes. Yeah, I was very privileged to, to win a scholarship um, to study with the, the legendary Annie Howes, for anybody who isn't aware, she um, was Octavian in the, the famous um, recorded um, production of uh, Rosencavalier, Strauss's Rosencavalier with uh, Dame Kiri Kanawa, and uh, also Jonathan Papp, who is a wonderful, wonderful coach, um, and he runs the George Scholte Academia. Um, so yeah, very lucky. <laughs> and what was before that your singing path and the trajectory there? The yeah, journey. A very different one, I think, to most of my colleagues in the sense that um, I didn't study music academically. Um, I I chose drama, uh, much to my music teacher's dismay, I think. (laughs) Um, I was in the National Youth Choir, however, um, not on the basis of my sight reading skills, however. Um, I I always wanted to join the Cathedral Choir, but uh, my father said it clashed with Ukrainian school on a Saturday morning, so... (laughs) Yes, and then I was also dance band singer at school. Um, so, you know, various little things. Um, I think the thing that sort of swung it was um, when I was 14, uh, I saw Verdi's uh, Umbalo uh, in Mascara in Festival Bregenz, uh, which the stage is on Lake Constance in Austria, and it's just phenomenal. Um, and I was very lucky to be exposed to that at a, an impressionable young age. And I think that kind of stuck with me. Uh, I was enticed by the, the theatre theatrical aspect of it all and passion um and the school I went to is sort of you know nobody goes into the arts to, to get a job it's like you become a banker or a lawyer or a doctor mm-hmm. um so uh, I studied literature and philosophy at the University of East Anglia uh, but whilst I was there I was in, you know, heavily involved in the music society and that's sort of you know where sort of got started to get the bug for for singing really and uh when the time came to graduate uh, I discussed with my parents Okay, do I pursue the law, which was the intention as most uh, people who graduate in the arts uh, go into, um, or do I give the singing a go? Um, And we, a friend of the family is an opera singer, uh, Pavlovnuka, a wonderful bass Ukrainian, uh, British Ukrainian like myself, uh, bass baritone. And I had some, started having singing lessons with him, and he was like, yeah, you know, you've got got a good chance of (laughs) making a career out of this. Um, so then, yeah, I still sort of that, that began the journey. Um, yeah. I, I was with him for four years, um, studying privately, um, but I was also uh, enrolling onto language courses abroad, seeing as much opera, going to as many recitals as my, my budget would allow, and in between that, attempting for the um, mental health service of the NHS. 
Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, so it's, it's been, let's say, a different journey to most. Um, and then, yeah, and eventually I kind of thought, okay, I feel like I need to be in a conservatoire and be surrounded by people my own age and just be in that environment. Um, so then that's when I auditioned for the Royal Academy and uh, haven't looked back. So. <laughs> I was going to ask you a bit about your Ukrainian background. Uh, is that your mother's side only or uh, both sides? Both, yeah. I'm fully Ukrainian blooded. Um, so I have the, you know, the British discipline, but the, the Ukrainian passion. <laughs> um, yes, so uh, as, as mentioned, um, sort of, I was I was desperate to join the cathedral choir, um, but uh, you know, Ukrainian school came first, which I'm really grateful for now because obviously it's you know, part of my heritage, and you can hear it when I sing. You can hear those Slavic overtones. Oh, that's, um, that's, yeah, that's no, I, I was actually in a Ukrainian uh, choir as well, which was run by my first singing teacher, Pavlov. Um, yeah, so. I mean, his name sounds so familiar. You know that I studied in Ukraine. I did my piano studies. I in did Ukraine. not know that. Yeah. Oh my goodness! Whereabouts in Ukraine? In Kiev. We could have been speaking ah. Ukraine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And Troshishke governor uh No, it, it mixes up in Ukraine in with Russian in my Russian head, in, yeah, yeah. Because I learned Russian a lot more and then Ukrainian we had to learn for the conservatoire. And in my head I need to separate the two, it's quite difficult. Yeah. Yes, yeah, I find that when I'm learning uh, Russian repertoire. <laughs> no, the Ukrainian background is really interesting for me. And did they, did your parent then move to Great Britain? Is that how you were born in, in Britain? Uh, my father was born and bred in the UK. Uh, my mother was actually born in Poland um, because after the war, when the sort of um, well, when obviously most of Europe was a was you know, a bit of a mess, my my maternal grandmother ended up uh, being in in northern Poland. So that's yeah, that's where my mother was born. So she was um, she lived in in communist Poland for a while. So she she had to speak Russian. Um, but she also spoke Polish and Ukrainian, yeah, and then came over. Sadly, um, her father was in, involved in an accident, and she lost her father at a very young age, so she had to grow up quite quickly. Um, and my grandmother, it was obviously um, very traumatic, so she wanted to um, begin a new chapter. So they came over to, to England, yeah, and then my mother had to, to learn English, and um, yeah, and she worked very hard, and I'm very, very grateful that uh, you know for everything she gave me, all the opportunities. Um, she gave me you know, everything that she didn't have the opportunities to do, which was to, to learn musical instruments, be privately educated, um, and, and all of that. So, yeah, yeah, very. So, I imagine they also uh, talked to you about the Ukrainian bard, uh, Taras Shevchenko. Yes, right. yes, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned him actually. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, Ukraine's answers to Shakespeare, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it is it's fantastic. Um, but very musical poetry yeah, for anybody who yeah. can read well, them in Ukraine. Yeah, well, the Ukrainian language itself is very musical. Um, I mean, the vowels are so similar to Italian, very pure vowels. So, yeah, I remember having to learn um, endless amounts of Tarashevchenko's uh, poetry at Ukrainian school. <laughs> yeah, for the concerts every year in March to, to celebrate his, his life and works. Yeah. So you have your Ukrainian Shakespeare as well. And uh, did you have any encounters early on with works of Shakespeare as a singer or as a, as drama? Because you studied drama as well. Yeah, sadly, um, in drama, the only <laughs> the only exposure I had was I was like third spear carrier or something in uh, the university's production of King Lear. So I didn't make the cut for <laughs> so uh, making up for lost time <laughs> with the second king. Um, but musically, um, I was a fairy in uh, the Mendelssohn's incidental music for Midsummer Night's Dream. That was with Garsington Opera and um, uh, with the Royal Shakespeare Company. So that was lots of fun. Um, but yet to to do Romeo in uh, Bellini's I Capuletti and Montecchi. That's a, a role, you know, to tick off one hopefully one day off the bucket list. Um, and also um, Hermia in uh, Britain's Midsummer Night's Dream. Course, incredible music. Tell me how did it work with um with the counterpoise and with John Caskin and John Thompson? How did that come about? How how was how were you approached by counterpoise or yeah, so um that came through working with um the wonderful conductor Lionel Friend through British Youth Opera. 
who is friends with Barry Millington, the artistic director of Counterpoise. Um, and I think Barry sort of asked him, oh, do you know of any young singers who, who are sort of interested in the art of song and you know, good at acting? And yeah, my name came up and uh, went and sang for, for Barry. And um, yeah, <laughs> as they say, the rest is history. And they, they asked if, obviously, if I would be interested in, in um, doing the art of love. Which are the life and works of um, Alma Mahler, who was of course married to the incredible Gustav Mahler. So yes, and that that began my journey with with Counterpoise and uh, Sir John working with Sir John Tomlinson. How has it been working with him? Was it intimidating at the beginning? Oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's such a legend. A legend. But it, what struck me um, when I first met him was his humility. He's still singing in in the top opera houses. And of course, everything that he has done, he had such an amazing career. Um, I feel very, very privileged to, to work with him and, and um, be mentored by him. You did the first the Kokoschka's Doll with him, didn't you? Yes, yeah. So I wasn't, uh, well, I was a, a silent <laughs> role in Kokoschka's Doll. So the, the Art of Love was the precursor to Kokoschka's Doll, the first half that I was acted as Alma Mahler embodied her her character and sort of spoke about the tumultuous love affair between her and Oscar Kokoschka. In the second half, um, Oscar Kokoschka, the one-man melodrama written by John Kaskin, was Oscar Kokoschka sort of depicting his his view of how he felt during and after this affair and and what led him to to have this doll, life-size doll of Alma created. A bit creepy. <laughs> it's very creepy. I, uh, yeah. Actually, John Caskin did a lecture at Manchester University where he had actually a photo of what was this doll. Have you seen it? It's yes, I have. Yes. Yeah, it looks <laughs> nothing like Alma. <laughs> Thankfully, I think. Well, I mean, she was probably a precursor of, you know, creative and muse at, in all. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very interesting character indeed. It was. It was really a, a really fun journey to sort of get to know her and get into her mindset. So. But that's the thing. So, do you have? Do you bring with you that theatrical, the acting method, acting, or that kind of approach to your roles, um, your your opera roles of trying to work some kind of backstory, their mindset? Yeah, I think so. I think it's really important. Um, context is everything, and drama was my first love. So, yeah, I pick up on sort of what I learned from that uh, with emotion memory. Yeah, I find it's it's helpful. But also, like you say, creating a backstory, um, doing as much research as possible um, into, into each character. So you can, of course, use your imagination, but also use that as a good starting point as well. So what was the research process for uh, The Shackled King? Because in Shackled King, you play several roles. You play mm, Cordelia. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, you play the fool, you play the two sisters. What, how, what was that process? Oh, well, I was very excited by that prospect because for me, I was just like, great, this is just licensed to sort of have as much fun as possible and play around with um, all these multifaceted characters. So obviously King Lear was the starting point for that. Um, and I actually went back to my A-level notes because uh, I, I studied for A-level uh, for English literature. Um, and sort of started reading through that. And I mean, there's so much out there. There's so, there is so much that has been written. So you, you know, the pos <laughs> you could just go on forever reading and reading. So yeah, a lot of it was, um, yeah, just kind of falling through combination of, of notes that I'd made myself, but also kind of getting hold of, of, um, more recent papers that had been written and just, yeah, trying to get a good psychoanalysis on the on twenty uh, first century psychoanalysis take on the characters. That's interesting. Really intriguing. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I love that's that's you know the best part of the job is is really getting into what makes these characters tick, especially the baddies. That's always fun. <laughs> but that that's interesting. At the same time, quite tricky because you're doing all the roles. I can understand mm. if you know in a theatre or in a role somebody picks up the the villain. And then they can try to justify that villain because they have to play and to be that villain. Yeah. But you yes. had to also be the oppressed Cordelia and mm. and the fool. So you had yeah. to kind of jump from one to another. It's yeah. Very demanding. Well, I think I used because um, Cordelia is obviously the kind of joining thread throughout 
most of it. Um, and then The Fool obviously makes quite a significant appearance as well. Goneril and Reagan, it's just a kind of a fleeting sort of moment. So that was fun and, and challenging to see if I could do it convincingly to kind of quickly switch from Cordelia, who is obviously the torch of kindness, love and beauty and generosity, and then to switch to, to the two uh, awful, awful sisters who are obviously you know diff- different characters in their own right and have different personalities and, and see, okay, how can I define each one in, in, the very, in a very sh- short amount of time, actually. So, yeah, I was, I was definitely up for that challenge. <laughs> Were you surprised at their attitude? I mean, the approach that John Caskin and John Tomlinson have taken is to choose just one scene and use, use that scene as a way of returning and remembering everything that has happened from this beginning of the play up to that point where Leah and Cordelia are reunited in the prison. Mm. So it's not really playing the whole thing through and accumulating all the emotions gradually. You kind of are thrown in the deep end. Yeah, um, absolutely. Which is why I think research is of paramount importance because you've got to have that baggage already. You've got to have that with you at, at the back of your mind always to, to portray each character convincingly. You've got to know where they've come from, what's their motivation, Etc. Etc. Et <laughs> so, how did you justify the acts of Goneril and Regan? <laughs> um, yeah, good. That's a good question. Um, <laughs> uh, I guess spoilt, um, sort of being oblivious to their privilege. Yeah, they're pretty pretty nasty in the sense that they just well, fix. but yeah, of course, of course, we're going to give them the kingdom. I mean, yeah, we're, we're your daughters, you know. And then, you know, they, they play that they're all too willing to play the game for selfish reasons. Um, and unfortunately, there are people like that in the world, you know, that, that, that um, do things for very selfish reasons and, and don't really sort of um, think about the consequences for anybody else. Very much. And that brings me actually to a question I had, whether you see analogies between those characters and the current world, you know, how we have as you say, people who are just have to accept life as it is, the others who expect from life a lot, yeah. and some that have to fight. Yes, yeah, absolutely. It's almost as though, you know, they think they're going to live forever, and uh, <laughs> that, um, I guess, selfish gene is coming into play. You know, I suppose on from their point of view, they could say, well, it's about survival, it's survival of the fittest, survival of the most cunning, survival of the strongest. How involved were you in the process of the composition and the libretto? When did when did the two Johns talk to you about it? Um, they mentioned it sort of uh, towards the end when we were coming towards the end of the Art of Love and Kokoschka's Doll um, tour, uh, and I was like, yeah, I'd, I'd definitely be interested in that. I'm not sure um, whose idea it was first, whether it's sort of John's or whether it was John Caskin's, but uh, I think Sir John sort of was keen on on creating something in this made-up scene of, of him and Cordelia in the cell together. And, I mean, he's perfect for King Lear as well. He was born to, <laughs> born to play this role. And then, uh, yeah, John Caskin sort of asked me a few questions about my tessitura, which is sort of like the voice, the, 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 uh, the range and whatnot, um, where I was most comfortable. So I, I think Sir John probably had quite... Um, a big role to play in the, the libretto, but then John Caskin, of course, was, was the one who you know, put it all together with the music and everything, and then came back with the score, um, and then we workshopped it, and there was you know a few few changes here and there, but on the whole, it was yeah really really well done, and uh, I was really excited because I sort of had so many ideas, I thought we could do so much with this, and then of course COVID happened, so. <laughs> About the voice, that's interesting because one of the things that the two of them mentioned when I talked to them in the second episode of our podcast was about the problem of that kind of, you know, changing from a speaking into singing mm, is a lot mm. easier for bass baritone because the voices are kind of, they produce at the same level, it's very mm-hmm. much closer. And actually, John, uh, Sir John demonstrated it, which was quite cool. But saying that it's a lot more difficult for mezzo soprano or other voices. Yeah. To yeah. The, tell me a bit about this kind of because it's a very de- John Caskin can write quite demanding vo- uh, things yeah, for the voice. Yeah. 
Yeah, so the sh you, uh, with the Sprechstimme, is that what you're referring to? Exactly. Um, I guess it's sort of making sure that you're supporting your voice. And when I say support, I mean obviously nourishing the voice with the breath. Um, so it's engaging in the same way that we're, we're trained as singers to, to carry that. Because it's very, especially English, it's a very lazy language, I find. So <laughs> it's very easy to, to just not sort of uh, project your voice um, or support it as well as one should. But I think, yeah, trying to incorporate the singing technique whilst you're, you're speaking or doing the Sprechstimme, I think, is very, very important. Do you find uh, you needed to learn new skills to do the contemporary repertoire compared to traditional repertoire? It just takes a lot more brain power <laughs> um, <laughs> because it's not, you know, the notes are not what you necessarily expect. The chords are not what you expect. The harmony is not what you expect. So it's, it's not enough, obviously, just to know the notes. You have to really... Well, but that goes with, with any repertoire, actually, not just contemporary. So, yeah, I think it just takes a bit more brain power. But from my point of view, <laughs> I, I mean, I, other singers may have something else to say about that, um, because obviously contemporary can be quite angular in the way that it's written. So it's not, you know, you don't, it, it's a lot harder to find that legato line. Um, but if you have a good, strong technique um, and you, you work hard, <laughs> then uh, it will be there. What is your way of learning the uh, roles and new music? What's your process? Uh, I always start with the words. The word is the core of the voice. Uh, my first singing teacher taught me that um, because otherwise you're just making animal sounds. So it's <laughs> um, so yeah. The the words like make sure you understand everything that you're you're singing about, and then say it in rhythm, and then that's when you you go to the piano and. Uh, have a wonderful time note bashing. <laughs> it's a repetitive learning system where, you know, you just have to do it over and over again. There are no um, no shortcuts, unfortunately. It's just over and over again um, until until you can't can't get it wrong, really. <laughs> John Caskin was saying that somebody had provided him with a kind of a Sibelius played out. A yeah, bit. yeah. I mean, it was it was strange because it was so metronomical. <laughs> um, that, you know, it's sort of a bit like, okay, well, I need to take a bit more time here and whatnot. Uh, quite very robotic in that respect, but it was very, very useful for, for sort of getting an idea of what it would sound like with the band. And of course, that was because of having the COVID, which you couldn't yeah. really rehearse with anybody yeah. else. Yeah, no coaching sessions, no uh, rehearsals, really. So yeah, when we put the recording together um, in December, it was, yeah, over a very, very short amount of time. <laughs> But that was absolutely a highlight of um, kind of winter for everyone that was involved in seeing it, making it, and the conference. So, uh, yeah, as a part of the Shakespeare Music First um, conference, um, I was for a long, I wanted the, the premiere of the performance because it was supposed to be premiered last year in, uh, or in Boxing Festival. Mm -hmm. So I was hoping for it to, a performance of it to be included in the first conference and of course COVID make the conference itself not being possible in person so we had to make everything online and as I said during the conference it was we started with plan A, B, C and finally the final plan that happened was plan F or something because we had just mm -hmm. constantly changed uh, and I was so thrilled when the idea of recording it and live streaming it during the conference but uh, Sir John just took it on. Yeah, why not? And the counterpoise. And I was so pleased about it. And you just did fantastically because you devised okay. also some kind of a staging. How how did you come up with that? What to do and how? Be and there was a COVID restriction. Yeah, so yeah. I was just about to say. Well, obviously we were restricted with with being two meters apart at least. So that was sort of like okay. But then within those restrictions, it's, it's amazing, actually, um, that you can heighten drama through that. So we were both on opposite sides. Um, we both had a, a sort of a table and chair. And it was, it was as though we mirrored each other in this cell. And, um, and then Sir John came up with the ingenious idea of having these ropes sort of tied around our wrists um, and tied to the chair. So, you know, we are literally shackled, well, literally and, and metaphorically in every way. And I think, yeah, I think it actually came across quite, it was a, it was a good, strong idea. Um, it was very strong. And did that, I mean, 
I guess although the restrictions meant you didn't have coaching or practicing or rehearsals properly, but did that feeling that you we were all in a way shackled during that period of the lockdown, did that help you with kind of the yes, intensity? Yeah, absolutely. It's a lot easier to get into that mindset <laughs> when you sort of just um, live through it, you know, and you, you can't go anywhere, you can't see your, your loved ones, um, yeah. It was at the ENO, English National Opera, provided some of their backrooms or something? Is the rehearsal? Yeah, it was, uh, the, yeah, I can't remember which rehearsal room it was, um, but uh, yeah, we were, we were um, lucky to be able to, to utilise. I think it used to be used for recordings, so the acoustics were, were fantastic. And then we actually just kept, there was um, all the props and, and yes. whatnot, paraphernalia um, was all in the background. And I thought, well, let's just keep that because it kind of adds to the, the, the dystopian feel of it all and the, the chaos of everything. And I think it actually really worked really well. It reminded me of, um, of a film, Brechtian style film that I saw with Nicole Kidman called Dogville. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. And that, that sort of, it had that sort of vibe about it, especially with the grids, you know, the two meter grids on the floor. It was very, very, very much in that style. Yeah. It really works, the charm. And as you say, that kind of dystopian, the idea that the props were still there. It was absolutely yes. fantastic. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it was it was quite a highlight. And um, I mean, how you spoke of film. I was wondering if you did watch any King Lear film version or theatre version in order to get to the mindset of King Lear. Um, I have seen, I saw the, um, the production with Anthony Hopkins. Yes. Um, but other than that, I try to kind of, I try to steer away from that when I'm creating a role because I don't want to get Influence. too heavily. Yeah. It's like listening to, to other singers. <laughs> it's sort of, you know, there's a, that danger where you sort of subconsciously end up imitating. So, but I did use, um, some works of art. There's uh, the paintings in the National Gallery. Uh, with uh, King Lear and the Fool in the Storm, sort of, I use that as inspiration and, and various other, other William, uh, yeah, William Blake, yeah, what was right, William Blake, Lord Lear and Cordelia in prison. It's a beautiful painting. It is, mm. yeah. That's an interesting thing to use uh, visual arts as a kind of um, in, inspiration. I think that's how my brain works. It is very visual. Um, obviously, we all learn in different ways and, and whatnot. So for me, if I have that as a starting point, it's very, very useful. Um, and then it's like you can take your own color palette and, and then mix it up and, and experiment and throw throw the paint, and throw the different colors on the canvas and see what you come up with. Yeah. Mm, absolutely. <laughs> One of the things I find very touching about the approach of um, to King Lear in by John Caskin in, uh, in terms of the music uh, was to think of the same actor and singer for Cordelia and the Fool. Mm. And I did tell him at the time that uh, Kozintsev, the filmmaker who made the king, very famous king, uh, film version of King Lear, he had the idea in his writings that the, uh, the Cordelia and the Fool are very similar in character mm. and personality. Hence, even you know the music and everything in them is quite close. So I was wondering if you found that while you were doing, you know, preparing the close, the truthfulness of both of them, yeah. honesty. I mean, absolutely. There are so, as scholars, you know, for hundreds of years have, have debated this. I mean, some people have said that it's possible that um, originally Cordelia and the Fool were, were played by the same actor, but also there are just so many parallels. I mean, they both assume the roles of protector, um, advocate, and they're, they're honest and loyal. Yeah, and even though the fool's purpose is to make Lear laugh, in reality he makes some really serious remarks, and and in fact, you know, Lear learns some really valuable lessons from the fool as he does from Cordelia. There's, there's parallels you just can't can't escape. And obviously, when Cordelia disappears, the fool sort of intervenes to fill that void. Absolutely. Um, how was the working with John Tomlinson on this? I mean, in terms of, did you? talk a lot about the roles yes and... lots of phone calls <laughs> yeah lots of discussion um lots of sort of sending picture messages of the ideas for staging and, and blocking but what about the more kind of the 
developing that the, the father daughter relationship and the kind of the that exploring the nuances of that the the various relationships that are there. Yeah, we didn't really actually discuss that. Um, I mean, we we touched on it, but we didn't really go into a huge amount of depth. Um, I think we just you know both respected the fact that we'll do our own research, you know, in our our own way. Um, but uh, I remember saying. Cordelia, she refuses to play the game, and that's obviously the, the huge distinction between her and her sisters, um, amongst other things. And she's expected to follow this this code of duty that presumably all the women have done prior to that, and all the the previous generations, um, and valuing community dependence and, and authority. And I think Lear believes that he's he's earned Cordelia's compliance from the position of absolute authority. But then when Cordelia takes this individualistic approach, she thinks for herself, well, actually, you know, um, I don't want to marry the Duke of Burgundy, actually, I'd rather marry the King of France. <laughs> and, you know, she's honest to the to the point of, of fault, almost, that uh, Lear has ultimately conflated love with, with obedience. If, if Cordelia doesn't obey, then she can't possibly love him. And and then, obviously, he begins to question himself, well, has have has he failed as a father? And I think sort of this 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 disrupts the status quo, and he refuses to feel the the pain of that. I think, or initially um, refuses to acknowledge the pain of the void that's left by Cordelia leaving. Um, and then I think that later manifests itself in in the storm scene, um, you know, where he has his his mental breakdown, and he's mourning the the ideal daughter he wants can't quite come to terms with the daughter that he has. And he wants to be allowed to, to shift to the centre of her world from her father to, to her husband, which, you know, um, happily when I shall wed, that Lord shall carry half my love with him, half my care and duty. So, yeah, ultimately, um, I think it's, it's not the argument that truly matters, it's the capacity to repair, and which they do, they do in the end. Um, which is why the more it's all the more cruel and devastating when she dies because uh, she for, you know she forgives them of course she does and, and um, Lear learns such a valuable lesson you know wisdom often comes in the the humblest of forms and King Lear is exemplary of that. It's gold dust to hear these things. There's there's nothing equal to being inside a role to be able to talk about it and then. Having music and acting at the same time, I think you mm. get to the heart of a role because you know you have you have the kind of direct access. Yeah. Because with me, particularly with music and the fool, because they are so interrelated, it's such a musical role anyway. Even in the played version, that, that you have so much music incorporated. Uh, so how much of your own life and personal life shaped these? Roles? Yeah. I, I mean, it's it's really interesting actually because I see with my relationship with um my own father who I love dearly um and uh, you know it's sort of it is that as you're growing up you know it, it's sort of um you know I've been educated and it's sort of um but I'm from a Ukrainian Catholic background as mentioned earlier so again it's sort of like you know it's it's uh, one's duty to get married have children uh, and you know be be obedient. Um, which I think even though my father is incredibly liberal, um, I think he still struggles with this, um, at times. You know, I'll, I'll say something which he doesn't necessarily agree with or something. And it's sort of, what, what, you know, (laughs) it's sort of, again, as mentioned, that sort of like that shift from sort of, um, allowing your children to to grow up and, and be an adult and think for themselves. But in, in their eyes, you're always their children. And there's that, it's always that ongoing sort of um, friction, I guess, maybe. <laughs> totally. And it kind of makes me think maybe there is a reason Cordelia is the youngest daughter. You know, it's that gap of generation is the most, you know, visible between the oldest daughter, uh, the youngest daughter and the old man. Um, yeah. rather and, than... he, and he's his favourite, of course. Yeah, he, he dotes on her. And then all the more, that's why I think it's all the more heartbreaking for him when she turns round and, and says, you know, well, yes, I, I, you know, I love you as far as it's my duty to love you and honour you. But when, when I shall wed, you know, then I'll, I'll give half my love to, to my husband. 
and you know you can take that literally or you can take that to mean well actually no because I'm I'm actually going to have to grow up at some point and, and fly the nest um, and I think for, for him, he's like, well, I, you know, thought you were going to be around forever to look after me and, you know, be my baby. <laughs> no, it's, it's true. Do you find a difference? And that I say because I relate to that. Do you find a difference in the kind of the fact that you have a different cultural background to most Brits? That, you know, the conventions that you have to live by are different from others? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, because I find, um, you know, uh, British culture particularly... Um, it's, it's much more individualistic in the sense that you are encouraged to be a lot more independent and sort of you know leave home a lot earlier whereas my background it's, it's you know family is everything um it's a, it's a collective uh it's more collectivistic should we say and yeah and you, you know you're sort of there for one another and um i mean i i imagine the it also makes more the pain of because we we are closer uh, the further you go, I think, to the east, you get closer to your parents. I mm. find a lot more independence here between parents and children yeah. than I say back home for me to in Iran and for you in Ukraine. I mm. from what I lived in Ukraine and I witnessed, you know, there's so much more closeness. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess the pain is also more because we feel that we. Well, I personally find the more independent I become, I think I'm. It's part of me thinks I'm betraying my parents. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting you say that. Yeah, um, I think that's it's probably um, maybe the parents probably think that as well. You know, they think, oh, you're you're sort of yeah, you're you're leaving us. You're you know, but you have to at, at some point. Uh, it doesn't mean that you love them any less, but it's like you have to you have to find your own path in life, and then and then you have the choice to come back or not. So, how did COVID affect in general your? Um practices and performances and then in particular the Shackles King preparations? Uh, in general I mean it's been horrendous I think anybody in the arts performing arts can vouch for that um, yeah it was just I remember I think in March I just had it was one day where I just got a whole um, uh, load of emails cancelling one contract after another um, so yeah that, that was that was pretty intense um, and that was sort of like okay we're in this for the long long haul this isn't going to be over anytime soon uh, and then yes of course um, then Barry got in touch and was like right you know if we can let's let's get a recording of this done so yeah I was just um, slogging away using utilizing that Sibelius recording <laughs> as much as possible and uh, yeah doing the blocking in my living room you know having spoken with um, Sir John and uh, I did actually go to, to to visit Sir John. We managed to get a, a rehearsal in before before meeting up with the ensemble, just so obviously we could save time. And so we both of us had a strong idea of what what we were going to do um, with our characters and our roles. No, rehearsing should have been quite complicated those days, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I remember it being very cold because we had to have the windows open. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Fenella, the the violinist, you know, who's sort of sat there shivering with a blanket on at one point. <laughs> it's quite an eclectic ensemble. And what did you think of John Caskin's music your, uh, in yourself? Is is that how you envisage the music to be? Is that how you imagined it would be? Yeah, I think it's. I think he's done a superb job. It's so evocative. Of you know, there are moments you know you can hear sort of a rat running across the cell or um and it begins obviously with the with the clays um and that could be you know the sound of time the clock ticking or it could be you know the raindrops in a cell or, or even bones yeah it, it's brilliant uh, um yeah what else can i say <laughs> he's a genius <laughs> yeah and how much did you work with the the timbre of the of the instruments because you know you can did you try to imitate? Is there places for that kind of play around with the voice? Um, yeah. Not so much with the instruments, but uh, I remember John gave me a note for the fool. He said, oh, yeah, it sounds lovely, but you sound too pretty. You sound, you know, too nice. Um, I want you to be more, you know, more like a petulant school schoolboy. So <laughs> I was like, okay, great. So, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that was um, you know, licensed to thrill. 
and uh, <laughs> sort of play around with sort of, you know, make, make it a bit more nasally, a bit more, um, you know, not as pretty, not as nice to differentiate from Cordelia, of course. That is a good question. I was going to ask that. How did you differentiate between the, the different roles? Because they clearly come across different, I have to say. You, whatever you decided to do, it worked. <laughs> the, oh, how, <laughs> what are the differences you have created between them? Yeah, I think, well, thought always precedes the action. So it's always, if you have a really strong idea of, again, going back to the, to the research and what, if you have a strong idea of the character, then you can embody this. And I think that comes through in the voice. I mean, obviously, there's a bit more to it than that. You know, physically, you do need to manipulate some things, as I said. But with the fool, you have to make it a bit more. I, I, I chose, that was a, the, the choice that I made to make it a bit more nasally. So it came across as a bit, a bit more, hopefully, like a petulant fool, fool boy. And then just remembering that Cordelia, as I say, she is the symbol of, of kindness and generosity. Um, and hopefully that came across. <laughs> um, so was your approach more lyrical and... Yes, yeah, yeah, I think so, yeah. And the other, the ugly sisters? <laughs> yeah, more, much more dramatic, kind, of, kind mm. of, try and make it a bit more, not ugly, but I suppose a bit more metallic. I was going for metallic quality. Did you try to use your knowledge of any other roles that you played for each, for any of them to kind of, you know, um, inform where you place the voice and where? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Yeah, I did actually for for um, uh, Gone on Reagan. I sort of was thinking of the the stepmother in um, Matinee Cendrillon, which I played at college. And any props did you try to and? Um, you know, to help you change character quickly? Oh, yes, yeah. Well, we definitely went through, obviously, there was no real other way to do it other than the Brechtian approach for, for the uh, changing to the fool from, from um, Cordelia. So I thought, okay, I can use a beanie hat and just, you know, put that on and I put some gloves on and be like, yes, okay, now I'm... So it's a, a clear instruction to the audience, okay, now I'm, I'm going to be the fool. I'm going to be a different character now. And as with um, uh, Gonan and Reagan, we have a, a each of us have a blanket, um, as you would perhaps in, the, in a cell. Uh, Utilise that as sort of um, for for Gonan, it was um, a pashmina, and then um, for for Reagan, it was um, pretended it was some sort of like fur fur mink thing that she would be wearing, you know, um, as the diva that she is. <laughs> Help as well, uh, not just for the audience, but I mean, if in act, I am uh, in acting. When I did, I felt that props very often help you mentally also to switch. Mm, yeah, your body. yeah, yeah. They they can be very useful. Yeah, if, if used correctly. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I have the rattle for the fool as well, which is a a, a great thing that uh, John Caskin has um, incorporated into the score. That is good, yeah. It's, it makes such a big impact. Uh, so how is the Boxing Festival coming up, the preparation for that? Yeah, well, we've had um, one rehearsal with, uh, we have a new pianist, uh, we have a new trumpeter as well. So yeah, so we're, we're, we've got half a new team. <laughs> so that, that will be a challenge in itself. But yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to, to performing it in front of a live audience. Are you changing the staging at all? I don't think so. Um, we've only was, had a music rehearsal. Um, it was very, very effective. I don't think you need to. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, I don't. We'll we'll see. We'll see. We've got uh, rehearsals in a couple of weeks, so um, we'll we'll see how it goes. Yeah, I, I I think it's pretty strong actually already. And of course, with the social distancing, we're we're sort of limited to that anyway. But so, you use that to your advantage in the video in the recording premiere that you did. Because it felt, and this is the reaction that I got from the audience, and that it that reason that you had to stay away from each other, yet you wanted to be closer to each other, yeah. created, you used it to your advantage rather than as a, you know, limitation. Yeah, yeah, that longing to, to be united, but not, not being able to, yeah, always just out of reach of one another. Well, I mean, between when you premiered it uh, in the recording with John, uh, Sir John, for the Shakespeare conference. And now, unfortunately, something really horrible and tra tragedy has happened in your life. I'm wondering if the loss of your mom is going to play a part in your 
playing of these roles. I, yeah. I think you can't you can't separate life from no, no. And of course, it was the last thing that she ever saw me do uh, with the, the recording. So yeah, I think it'll be very emotional. It'll be. Um, in fact, it will be far obviously the rehearsals that I'm I'm doing with Ombra at the moment. It'll be the first first time I've performed in front of a, a live audience. So, um, so yeah, coupled with that, and uh, um, it will be, yeah, um, it'll be very, what very was emotional. Her, what was her reaction when you, when she heard you or saw you playing, played in the recording? Yeah, um, I think, yeah, I think she, I think she in, enjoyed it. Well, as, as far as one can enjoy King Lear, as <laughs> a cathartic experience. Um, but uh, yeah, I think, I think she was very proud. I, I hope she was. I'm so pleased that she managed to see that because it was yeah, an achievement. Me too. It, me was, too. it was really an achievement. How has music helped you with the healing process? Um, yeah, music, I mean, it, it's like, I, I mean, when my mother first passed, I just couldn't, for the first few months, I just couldn't really do anything. Um, it was just, um, but then when I finally sort of, okay, that's, you know, I need to, need to, one needs to kind of keep going somehow. Um, it's like going back to an old friend. Um, it's always there. It never lets never lets you down. Yeah, it is. It's a particularly this this piece. It's a cathartic experience. You know, we've all experienced, especially in the last year. Um, I'm sure I'm not unique in that um, sense uh, to have experienced loss, um, you know, great loss. Uh, and and that's what um, you know, art and, and music. But it's it's there to it's there to serve us. That's what makes us human, um, and it's it's delving into these these timeless emotions, um, and that's what makes Shakespeare so brilliant. It's it's these emotions that, um, as we you know, without getting too psychoanalytical about it, but but like the relationship between King Lear and Cordelia, it's, it's you know, um, I've experienced that myself with you know moments <laughs> father and daughter. Um, and and in all his other works, there are these these emotions that um, we all we all experience throughout life, throughout our journey. I mean, I find myself that poetry and words at the times of grief are can be just as powerful as music and other things. And yeah. I was wondering if you had also you had referred to any poetry or any words that will help you cope. Yes, I actually got into. Um, uh, Margaret Atwood actually um, some of her poetry there was a, a book of poems in a book called The Door a compilation of poetry and um, she's obviously quite renowned for being quite dark um, but I was in a dark place so <laughs> you know it sort of helped me to sort of um, um, connect and sort of realise well actually I'm not alone there are other people that are experiencing this this darkness as well um, this, this grief um, so uh, and yeah, that's that's what art should do. It should reach out to you, and it should it should help you connect. Absolutely, and I mean the it is a very naive thing to think that when you're sad, you have to read something to cheer you up. Because on the contrary, you need somebody to console you, and yeah. I, somehow yeah. those words and the music consoles us rather than it reaches out to you. And like I say, it makes you feel that little less lonely to know that somebody else has experienced that um, a similar thing. Was she a great supporter of your um, musical then journey, I guess? Yes, yeah, she was. She always used to say to me, oh, yes, you, you, you know, it suits you being on the stage. <laughs> and uh, in fact, actually, I have a really nice story. Um, uh, one parent's evening, she said to, to the, um, my music teacher, uh, Mr. Shaw, sadly, who's no longer with us, um, she, she mentioned to him, said, oh, my, my daughter has a good voice, you know. She has a good singing voice. <laughs> And he was he was like t quite taken aback. He's like, oh really? Okay, well we must do something about this. And um, <laughs> uh, him and, and Dr. Whistle, who are um, uh, part of the music department at, at uh, my school, uh, were very encouraging from then on. Um, let's say that you know um, dance, dancing, and everything. And yeah, they, I was always involved in the, the musical aspects uh, within the school. From what you had written about her in your in the eulogy, uh, she sounded also kind of force of nature. <laughs> oh yeah, she was incredible, a real incredible woman. Um, let's say she had a pretty tough start to life, losing her father at age of seven, um, and then coming over to, to a foreign country, not being able to speak the language, um, and you know, um, surviving and thriving 
you know, she ran two businesses, brought up two two children. And the interest in music comes from family in you or just something? Yeah, I mean both um my my father is is the the musical one if you like. Um but I think my mum could have been musical, she just wasn't given those opportunities. But yeah, I grew up with a very eclectic mix. Everything from the Beatles, Led Zepp, uh, Jethro Tull, to Tchaikovsky, to Ukrainian folk song. Uh, Ukrainian folk song that definitely played a, a massive part. Uh, my 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 father he he used to play in in a, a Ukrainian band when he was younger. He plays the accord. He plays everything. He plays the accordion, piano, guitar, everything. Yeah, it's an amazing background you have, and um, you said you bring somehow you some your language background is heard can be heard in your singing how is that yeah i think so um i mean it's yeah <laughs> i remember the first time i sang in front of um john copley the first thing i did with um royal academy opera it was um julio cesare's scene the hunting scene i don't know if you're familiar with it but mm-hmm. um when he's singing to ptolemeo basically you know uh, saying sort of about, you know, I'll, I'll, I've got my eye on you, <laughs> you know, um, I'll hunt you down if you if you uh, mess up. And uh, he just turned to me uh, and he just said, you're not an English mezzo. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> and Jane Glover promptly said, oh, yes, uh, Orizana's very exotic. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's wow. so, I think it's so Slavic overtones. But you can't hear my speaking voice as well, actually. It's the rich, the rich, earthy quality of my voice. Uh, Were you ever interested in Ukrainian folk singing? You know, the kind of very, it is deep in the throat, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I, <laughs> yeah, I can't do it very well, but I, I know people that can. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. It's like I say, it's so earthy. And just, it probably will kill your other Yeah, career. probably not <laughs> great for the opposite. <laughs> It does sound yeah. quite dangerous for... for yeah, for yeah, I don't think my singing teacher would approve. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll veer away from that for now. <laughs> you have some uh, fantastic things coming up. Yana Chick as well? Yes, yeah, which um, yeah, we're currently rehearsing for, working with um, Justin Brown, who's the artistic director at Carl Ruhr Theatre, and um, Olivia Fuchs, the wonderful director. So, yeah, having lots of fun with that. Um, I get to say that The Forest is Wife and come on and stage and scream at everyone. <laughs> so. It's such a lovely, lovely opera, Connie. It is. It's a beautiful, beautiful opera and, and really fitting for, for, for this time, actually. Um, you know, it's all about the cyclical nature of life and how there's, there's so much uncertainty within life, um, but the only certainty is change and, and you, have to, you have to deal with that change. Um, as part of being alive, being human, you know, you have to keep going. And there's that charming bit at the end of the opera where the forester comes across, um, yes, yeah, the, 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 the little, the, he's like, oh, you're just like Dixon Sharp is, you know, um, and it's obviously a nod to that, let's say, you can't stop time, you can't stop the, 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 the movement of life, but it, but it comes full circle. Um, as you as you said to me actually when when my mother passed, um, you said that you know you like to think of life in that cyclical way um, rather than the the linear. Yes, way. that has been for me a way of surviving with losses and things, and it's it's, um, it's also a thing that comes from the Sufism, which is all about you know that um, in Sufism you celebrate death because it's our wedding with eternity. You become mm. eternal. And that is one Rumi, one poem by Rumi that says, "Death is my wedding with eternity." Uh, and somehow, I, you know, I, as much as I love Shakespeare, I find that Shakespeare's words in about grief make you feel the pain of grief even more. Mm. Whereas mm. I, I found Rumi's poems make you feel there is something beyond and kind of a bit more hopeful right yeah <laughs> so yeah. <that> <laughs> yeah i, I yeah. always say i don't recommend you know macbeth tomorrow tomorrow and tomorrow as it because no. it kind <laughs> of says you know life is futile <laughs> yeah. yeah so yeah i i think the healing and i think as you say the kind of little vixen is very well for you at this time and for all of us at this time yeah it really is and also the fact you know we're, we're so intertwined with nature for so long we have 
abuse nature and expected it to serve us. Whereas no, we are we're all one. You know, we should be we should be all serving each other. You know, mm-hmm. um, looking after our planet, looking after our looking after nature and not abusing it. And, it's the most uh, ecological opera. Yeah, I guess it is. Well, you know, my dad always says, um, if you want to understand human nature, watch the David Attenborough theories. <laughs> um, uh, uh, you know, and the cunning little vixen is a perfect example of that. So, and actually, Olivia, the, the director, you know, she wants, even though I'm playing a human, um, she still wants us to sort of adopt animal qualities. It's sort of like, okay, but if your if your character, as Forrester's wife, if she was an animal, what animal would she be? And I was like, okay, yes, yeah, she'd be a wolf, you know. Mm. <laughs> yeah. It's a very nice approach. So it's mm. an antidote to your King Lear. <laughs> yes, it really is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's nice to have have the two simultaneously. Uh, working as, alongside one another. <laughs> it sounds absolutely fascinating. Anything else beyond that, these two? Um, I'm doing a Russian, hopefully, if, we're, if we don't go into another lockdown, fingers and toes crossed, uh, Russian recital for the Rydell Festival in September. Oh, lovely. The repertoire yeah. being? Um, not fully finalised, <laughs> but there will definitely be some Tchaikovsky in there. <laughs> Yeah, goes without saying you can't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not allowed to do any Rachmaninoff, unfortunately. Um, oh wow! Why? Um, I think because somebody else is um is doing a Rachmaninoff recital oh. in the evening, so um my lunchtime recital, yeah, um, I'm banned from doing that. <laughs> I was going to contact you after this and tell you, oh, how about this or that Rachmaninoff? <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Um, but it's fine. It's good. It's a good excuse to explore. Your repertoire. That sounds amazing. Yes, and how do you, yeah how do you balance the kind of recital singing with operatic singing? I think they they sort of complement one another. Different skill sets, of course. Recitals allow you to um, to be a lot more intimate with the audience. Um, allows more flexibility. You don't have a big orchestra conductor telling you no, no, you were too early or too late. <laughs> um, you know, you can um, sort of take more work collaborate with your pianist so you've got the yeah, the freedom of flexibility there but then with uh, the opera it gives you it gives you that strong technique that stamina to be able to do sort of an hour long recital whatever it is and and what you learn well, from the characters because each i find each art song is sort of like a, a mini aria in itself mm. um you know your, your, your storytelling at the end of the day it's, all about communication both art forms allow you to explore that in 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 different ways if you wanted to choose a shakespearean role for yourself in the future what would it be from the opera from the canon from the opera um yeah romeo oh yes (laughs) yeah i mean it's like everyone wants to play you know romeo and juliet at some point so (laughs) i'm not a soprano so i can't do juliet so it has to be romeo And operat- uh, not operatically, your favourite role character? Ooh. Well, that's a good question. Hamlet is already taken. <laughs> <laughs> no, not ha- Hamlet's too depressing. No, it has to be probably a character from like The Taming of the Shrew or something or Twelfth Night. More, more life affirming. <laughs> yes, yeah. I hope if there isn't one for Smith Soprano, somebody composes uh, things for you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, I mean, like I say, I'm grateful to, to John for, for having written The Shackled King. I mean, like Cordelia, The Fool, it's, it's, uh, and Goneril and Reagan. <laughs> four that, for the price of one. <laughs> I know, you have four for the price of one, I know. Now, it was an interesting process, I think, for him as well, because he didn't at the beginning have the idea of having all these roles as well. And I do remember going to this place and talking about oh really ah uh, so did you have um did you have some input well, into creating- I mean, no no it was his thoughts but you know we t- i mean he did show me first time his uh kind of libretto and i got to comment a little bit but i love the idea you know because i, w- I was thinking how on earth is it going to work but you showed us how it is going to work <laughs> <laughs> well but it was all as i said to john i mean he was he you know kindly rang me a few months ago and he's just like, oh, the feedback's been fantastic. And I said, yeah, but John, it was all there. You put it all on paper. You know, when it, when something is so well written, it makes yeah. our jobs as performers so much easier because it's there. It just, you know, it just requires a bit of imagination to bring it to life. Well, um, I hope the, nothing comes in the way of the 
uh, stage premiere. Thank you. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I really hope so. so. Yeah, I think things are going in the right direction right now in yes. terms of the virus. But let's hope nothing comes in the way of that because that you have worked so hard on it, and it's such a lovely, lovely piece. And it's hard to call it lovely. <laughs> I call. Oh, love, I think it's strong. It's and I, the I, strong is the word. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and it, and I hope it serves. Um, I can say as a cathartic experience. But that's um, the thing. I've done some, some, for me, so I hope it does for for other people as well. So, yes. but you know, there, there isn't, you know, the full, obviously, there are moments where the full brings, you know, a, a bit of comic relief. It's not all, all doom and gloom throughout. Oh, no, 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 no. It's a very <laughs> varied language. Yeah, I, I absolutely enjoy that about it. Thank you so much for this. And I, I really hope that the journey of healing is going smoothly and you take it as something that will, you will come stronger. Thank you. Yeah. And it's, it's good to be back um, in the rehearsal room with, with, with my people <laughs> um yeah with the fellow artists that that's that's not a bit of sense of normality whatever that is these days well then maybe a follow-up after the shackle king <laughs> yes absolutely. <laughs> to see how it went thank you very much and so Pleasure. let's just stay in touch let's yeah absolutely touch. yeah okay enjoy the rest of your evening you too take care bye bye, 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 bye. bye.